0: Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink and this is Christogenia on TalkShoe. It is Friday, May twentieth, two thousand and eleven, and tonight I'll be presenting Matthew chapters six and seven from the Christogenia New Testament. I was away at um Philadelphia last week, and, and while well, well, I was away in southeastern Pennsylvania last week and, and spent a good amount of time in Philadelphia, there'll be posts on Christagenia soon, um, re- reflecting some of the things that I did there. Well, one of the things was to check out the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology, which was um, well, which was quite disappointing because the museum has certainly seen its... Zenith long ago. I mean, it looks like that the the exhibits that I saw there were um, sixty and seventy and eighty years old, and and it doesn't look like anything new has really been added to the museum since the time of um, Leonard Woolley and and the archaeologists of the nineteen twenties and thirties and and the, his excavation of Babylon. That there are some newer exhibits having to do with the Taran Basin and, and the, the Silk Route, and, and they're the only exhibits that, that I saw there, but they were not in the museum. Rather, they had pictures of those exhibits in the museum. It, it was terrible. I, I was really disappointed at the lack of depth of the exhibits, and, and it's basically um, I, I didn't see anything more there than I've seen in archaeology journals the last 12 years, and, and actually I've gotten a lot more from archaeology journals. I, I was disappointed. It's a shame. That's the state of Anglo-Saxon society today. It, it seems to me that everything new being done simply supports the uh, all the new funding and new money and, and new research is simply made to support the, the Jewish causes of diversity and multiculturalism. And, and pandering to the, to the non Saxon races. That, that seems to me the way the country's going, and, and I'll be commenting on that over the next four or five weeks on Christogene.org. Before starting with Matthew 6 and 7, you, you know, I looked at my notes in preparation for this program. I, I, I've been looking at, at the NA 27 as I've gone through the first five chapters. Today I dug out my translation notes. I do have notes for my Matthew translation. They're not typed yet. It's going to be some time before they are. They'll, they'll get there sooner or later. It's difficult to type the translation notes because they are replete with Greek. But but um let let me say that the manuscripts upon which translations of Matthew are based in my notes, I only have eight handwritten pages of variations among the different manuscripts in Matthew for the first seven chapters of Matthew. And, and that's amazing because I would have that many notes maybe for two or three chapters in Paul. And, and um, those, the, those eight handwritten pages that deal with variations in, in the Greek among the different ancient manuscripts, really, that, that's not much at all. And, and um, Nearly all of those variations are, are absolutely immaterial when it comes to articles of our Christian faith. And, and I'm only talking about the first seven chapters of Matthew, right? And, and, um, and, and all the variations I, I see, are, are, they're actually quite trivial, so I haven't really discussed them. If I see any important variations in subsequent chapters of Matthew that we cover, of course, I, I would notice them. So, so most of the differences that you see in, in the... Um, King James, as compared to the Christoghenian New Testament, for these seven chapters of Matthew, are actually differences in translation, or they're very trivial differences in the manuscripts, that they're not really worth mentioning so far. And, and, um, and as we proceed, if anything serious comes up, of course, I would mention it. Last week, discussing Matthew chapter 5, we saw clear connections between Christ's word in the New Testament And the promises to Israel recorded by Isaiah in the Old Testament. Christ had come, as Isaiah prophesied, and as Christ himself attested. Christ had come for those who sit in darkness, for the prisoners, for the captives, for those very children of Israel divorced from their God, Yahweh, centuries beforehand in the very days of Isaiah. It is absolutely evident that an honest study of scripture reveals precisely what Jeremiah prophesied to be. That the new covenant was made by God with those very same people whom he made the old covenant with. The literal, physical children of Israel. Nobody else can be added to this relationship. There, there are many, many direct connections between the prophets and the words of Christ and we will see more of them in in these upcoming chapters. We also saw that most of the things which Christ taught in this Sermon on the Mount can also be found in the Old Testament. In reality, he was teaching nothing new. Even if he was explaining much of it differently, there is nothing new under the sun. Today, with Matthew chapters 6 and 7, we shall continue to see that these things which Christ taught His students are timeless, and existed in the Old Testament as well. They were codified into the Law and the Prophets in many ways. If our race obeyed God's Word, we would indeed have heaven. And, and the, the behavior that we should partake, that that we should, what we should have, is outlined right here in the Sermon on the Mount. It's never been practiced by Christians. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Now offer your righteousness not to do before men for them to behold, yet otherwise you have no reward from your Father who is in the heavens. Therefore, when you should do an act of charity, you should not trumpet it before you, even as the hypocrites do in the assembly halls and in the streets that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But upon your doing an act of charity, your left hand must not know what your right hand does, that your act of charity would be in secret, and your father who sees would repay you in secret. Almsgiving, as it's called in the King James Version, almsgiving in the ancient world, was with all certainty seen as a way of asking forgiveness for, from God for one's sins. However, the almsgiving, or the act of charity, had to be without fanfare. If almsgiving was accompanied with fanfare, it was for the benefit of the giver, and wasn't truly for the benefit of the recipient. And therefore, God will not reward it. That's clearly the message which Christ is relaying to us here. I'd like to read some verses about almsgiving from the Septuagint. First, from the Wisdom of Sirach. I'll be quoting from the Wisdom of Sirach quite often tonight. That's definitely a book of wisdom that should have been in the Bible. It's also known as Sophia Sirach. Brethren, and help are against time of trouble, but alms shall deliver more than them both. Sirach 40, verse 24. From the book of Tobit, in the Septuagint, chapter 4, verses 5 through 11. My son, be mindful of the Lord our God all thy days. And let not thy will be set to sin or to transgress his commandments. Do uprightly all thy life long, and follow not the ways of unrighteousness. For if thou deal truly, thy doing shall prosperously succeed to thee and to all them that live justly. Give alms of thy substance, and when thou givest alms, which are acts of charity, let not thine eye be envious. Neither turn thy face from any poor, and the face of God shall not be turned away from thee. If thou hast abundance, give alms accordingly. If thou hast but a little, be not afraid to give according to that little. For thou layest up a good treasure for thyself in the day of necessity. Because that alms do deliver from death, and suffereth not to come into darkness. For alms is a good gift unto all that giveth in the sight of the Most High, not in the sight of the general public. Tobit, chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, a little further in the chapter. Give of thy bread to the hungry, and of thy garments to them that are naked, and according to thine abundance give alms, and let not Thine eye be envious when thou givest alms. Pour out thy bread on the burial of the just, but give nothing to the wicked. That's the primary difference between uh, Christianity and communism. Communism or compulsory socialism as we have here in this nation today. Compulsory socialism forces us to support the ungodly and to support the wicked. Proverbs, verse, chapter 21, verses 13 and 14. Whoso stoppeth his ears at the cry of the poor, he also shall cry himself, but shall not be heard. In other words, when we hear that our brethren are needy, we had better help them. A gift in secret pacifieth anger, and a reward in the bosom Strong wrath. In other words, when we share with our brethren and we ourselves sin, Yahweh overlooks that because we have shared our substance with our brethren. That's the message in Tobit, and that's the message in Proverbs chapter 21. Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, Do not be as the hypocrites, because they love to pray in the assembly halls, and standing at the corners of the streets, that they should be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. But when you would pray, go into your closet, and closing your door, you shall pray to your father who is in secret, and your Father who sees shall yield to you, in other words, shall hear your prayer in secret. You know, I've often been criticized, unlike certain other um, identity speakers, for not holding public prayers, for not holding little prayer sessions here on, on the programs that I do. And this is why I don't do that. And and we see the theme already here in Matthew, when you give acts of charity, don't trumpet it in public. Do it privately. When you give prayer, you needn't pray out in the street. Do it privately. That's absolutely the words, the instructions of Christ right here. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, We see that Anna, the mother of Samuel, that her prayer was answered when her lips moved, but she spoke not. She prayed in her heart. Likewise, the prophet Daniel prayed alone in his room. And it was not necessarily his intention that he be seen through the window by his enemies, as it is related in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel and Anna while they were seen by others, were both praying privately. The apostles often prayed together, but they prayed privately. They prayed privately alone together. They didn't pray in front of the public. They didn't make exhibitions of prayer in front of the general public and the scribes and the Pharisees and their enemies and and the onlookers. They didn't pray to make a show in front of others. Christians who insist on public prayer or that others must pray with them, those Christians are simply looking for a crutch. They want others to see how pious they are, that they may justify themselves. Real Christians do not need crutches. Real Christians do not need outward displays of piety, which are all pretentious. We should have no need to be seen praying publicly or with others. We should seek our God with our hearts, and we should display our love for our God through good deeds that we perform for our brethren. Not merely in the pretense of exhibition. Real Christians should reject showmanship, pretense, and exhibition. We don't need it. We know who we are. We know what's in our heart. We know who our God is. Matthew 6, verse 7. And those praying should not babble on repeatedly, just as the heathens do. For they suppose that by their many words they shall be heard. Therefore, do not become like them, for your Father knows that which you have need of before you ask. This is a a direct rebuke of what we see in Roman Catholicism. When, when I was a child, that this, uh, this really turned me off, and, and uh, I saw it all the time. When, when I was a child, well, we would be told to, to conduct a so-called penance where we were instructed to repeat the same prayer any number of times, or where beads-bearing idols were used to do the same. We, we were told to say a rosary. We were told, oh, go say ten Hail Marys and... Five our fathers and light a candle and and you'll be cured of your sins. Right? Sure. That that's just that that's just paganism, and and that's a ritual in itself. We think that you you think that ritual is going to save you because you said ten Hail Marys. Every Israelite has been saved by Christ two thousand years ago. We can't add anything to that. Yahweh knows what we need. He knows what we have done. He knows what we need to repent of. And he knows what we should be rewarded for. When we pray, it should be for our benefit in in seeking guidance that we are able to walk in his will and to be guided by his spirit rather than walking in the ways of flesh and in the ways of the world, which leads us to sin. We should pray that his will be done, as we shall see, even if we certainly should know that it shall be done. And at the same time, we should pray that we are able to stand in the evil day, as Paul put it at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. From Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verse 1. Keep thy foot, when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they consider not that they do evil, men justified by rituals, right? Be not rash with thy mouth, And let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and you are upon the earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. As Christ said, do not babble on repeatedly just as the heathens, for it is absolutely vain. God can hear you. Matthew 6, verse 9. Therefore, thusly, are you to pray. Our Father who is in the heavens, your name must be sanctified. Your kingdom must come, your will must be done. These verbs differ in my translation from the King James because they are imperative. As in heaven, also upon the earth. There goes the rapture, if Yahweh's will is going to be done on the earth is people have to be on the earth and not in heaven, right? Give to us our bread sufficient for the day and remit or forgive for us our debts. And here's the important part. As we also have remitted for our debtors, to those who owe us, we should forgive those of our brethren who we feel owe us. And do not bring us into trial, but deliver us from the evil one. Prayer is simple and direct. We express that the will of our Father in heaven be done, and ask that life's basic needs be provided for us as we seek his will on earth. Yahweh tries no man, as the Apostle James tells us. Yet Yahweh allowed Job to be tried by the adversary. Yahweh tempts no man, but allows us to be tempted by the world. This seems to be a paradox, yet it is rather simple. I'll read James chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. From where are battles, and from where are fights among you? Is it not from this, from your pleasures making war among your members? You desire and you have not. You murder and strive and are not able to succeed. You fight and battle. You do not have for reason that you do not request. You request and do not receive for reason that you request evil. In order that you may be consumed in your pleasures, listen to the prayers of these people out in the mainstream these Baptists and these Episcopalians and these Catholics. And James is exactly right, and they still do it today. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? I mean, it could be repeated over and over. We could substitute Mercedes-Benz for Yankees winning the World Series or or a a new Cadillac or a a new big-screen television. The prayers of most people follow in that pattern most of the time. Verse 4. Adulterers! Do you not know that the love of society is hatred for Yahweh? He, therefore, who would desire to be a friend of society, establishes himself as an enemy of Yahweh. Or do you suppose that vainly the scripture says, With envy yearns the spirit which dwells in us. But more greatly he gives favor on account which it says, Yahweh opposes the arrogant, but he gives favor to the humble. Therefore, subject yourselves to Yahweh, but stand against the false accuser, the devil, and he shall flee from you. Draw near to Yahweh, and he shall draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Endure hardship and lament and weep. Your laughter must turn into grief and joy into sorrow. Humble yourself before the prince or the Lord, and he shall exalt you. 1 John, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love society, nor the things in society. If one should love the society, the love of the Father is not in him. Because all which is in society... The desire of the flesh and the desire of the eyes and the pretense of life is not from of the Father, but is from all of the society. the world? And the society passes on in its desire, but he, doing the will of Yahweh, abides forever. Back to James, chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Blessed Is a man who endures trial because being approved he shall receive the crown of life which he promised, which Yahweh promised to those who love him. No one being tried must say, From Yahweh I am tried. Your punishment you should not blame God for, it's usually due to your own actions. For Yahweh is not able to be tempted by evil, and he tries no one, but each is tried. By his own desires being drawn out and enticed, then the desire conceiving gives birth to error or sin, and the sin being accomplished brings forth death. While it may not have been the case with Job, his trial was was different, right? Most often, when men are tempted, it is due to their own lusts, which they give into, and this leads us into trial. Obeying the will of God, we would not give in to such worldly desires. And then we would have a far less chance of being subjected to the trials of this world. But we must understand that like Job, even though being perfect in every way and pious in every way, we may still be tried. And then we would pray to our God, as Job did that we are able to sustain that trial. And Job, while he didn't do anything to get himself in such trouble, while the adversary, the false accuser, singled Job out, for an example, Yahweh allowed Job to be tried, and Job fared magnificently in his trial because he never blamed God. Job never put the blame for his trial on God. So the false accuser turned out to be a false accuser because the devil told God that if Job Job underwent trial that he would curse God to his face and Job didn't do that. The devil was wrong. When we're tried, we should hope to pass the test, like Job did. But if we stay away from lusts and control our desires, we should hope not to be tried at all. From the Septuagint, Psalm 18, verse 30. As for my God, his way is perfect. The oracles of Yahweh are tried in the fire, He is a protector of all them that hope in him, and hope in him includes obedience to him. Matthew 6, verse 14. For if you would remit, or forgive, men their transgressions, your heavenly Father shall also remit for you. But if you should not remit for men their transgressions, neither shall your Father remit your transgressions. If your brother borrows something, and you don't pay it, and, and he doesn't pay it back, you should forget about it. If he's not your brother, you shouldn't be loaning him anything in the first place. If he's an alien, you shouldn't be giving him anything. <laughs> this goes hand in hand with the fact that all Israel shall be saved. That all Israel shall be justified, and every Adamic soul shall ultimately share in the salvation of the tree of life. The citations for these statements are at Romans 11.26, Isaiah 45.25, and Genesis 3.22. If we judge our brother harshly, Yahweh shall judge us harshly. Especially since most of us had done or have thought to do many of those same things for which we judge our brother. To remit or to forgive a man's transgressions, the man must be repentant in the first place. And repentance includes a cessation of the sinful activity which one is repenting from. You do do not have to forgive a sinner who is unrepentant. For this reason, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Do not be led astray, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminates, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor railers, nor rapacious, rapacious robbers, greedy people, shall inherit the kingdom of Yahweh. And all these things, some of you may have been, but you have cleansed yourselves. Moreover, you have been sanctified. Moreover, you have been deemed fit or justified in the name of Prince Joshua Christ and in the spirit of our God. So we see that there is room for repentance in all those things, provided we cleanse ourselves of those activities. Paul also explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, That unrepentant sinners are to be put out of our community. However, once a brother repents, he can find forgiveness with God, and we must also forgive him. And I'll discuss 1 Corinthians chapter 5 again later on this evening. Verse 16 And when you should fast, do not be like the sullen-faced hypocrites, for they obscure their faces that they, they may appear to be fasting to men. Maybe contort would be a better, verse, a better word than obscure there. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. But you, fasting, anoint your head and wash your face that you should not appear to be fasting to men. But to your father... To whom it is in secret, and your father, who shall who seeing it, shall repay you in secret. Again, we see, as with prayer, and as with giving, that outward displays of piety are scorned. That is because they are used as crutches by the weak or as pretenses by the ungodly. You could bet that when a Jew gives money away, he's doing it for his own benefit to get something that he wants. The godly man will naturally manifest his piety through actions on behalf of his brethren and not through nice speech and feigned displays. Christ said of the Judeans that these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And he was surely talking about the Edomites for the most part. Where he was quoting Isaiah twenty-nine thirteen, It is easy to pray, and it is easy to fast, and it is easy to look good doing it. But it means nothing. It is harder to give to one's brethren, even one's own life, and expect nothing in return. From Isaiah chapter 58, verse 3, Why have we fasted, say they, and you see it not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and you take no knowledge? Behold, in the day of your fast... You find pleasure and exact all your labors. Behold, you fast for strife and debate, and to smite with the fist of wickedness. Ye shall not fast as ye do this day, to make your voice to be heard on high. Is it such a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush, and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Himself, himself. thou will you call this a fast and an acceptable day to Yahweh? Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke. So we see that Yahweh would rather have us act justly towards our brethren to free the slaves, to free them from their burdens, to help them with their problems. That's a real fast. Isaiah 58, verse 6. That's what Yahweh really wants from us. He would rather see us act justly than to act unjustly and attempt to justify ourselves through prayer and fasting. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourself treasure upon the earth, where moth and corrosion obliterate and where thieves dig through and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor corrosion obliterate, and where thieves do not dig through or steal. For where your treasure is, there also shall be your heart. Remember the words from Tobit chapter 4, cited earlier, verse 7. Give alms of thy substance, and when thou givest alms, let thine eye not be envious, neither turn thy face from any poor, and the face of God shall not be turned away from thee. If you have abundance, give alms accordingly. If you have but a little, be not afraid to give according to that little. For you lay up a good treasure for yourself against the day of necessity. Because alms, or acts of charity, do deliver from death and suffereth not to come into darkness, for alms are a good gift unto all that give it in the sight of the Most High. If we give to our brethren when we have, we see hope that we ourselves shall receive when we are in need. That's the message in Matthew. That's the message in Tobit chapter 4. From Isaiah chapter 51 verse 8. For the moth shall eat them up like a garment, and the worm shall eat them like wool. But my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. Generation. And from the wisdom of Sirach again, chapter 29, verse 10, Lose thy money for thy brother and thy friend, and let it not rust under a stone to be lost. Lay up thy treasure according to the commandments of the Most High, and it shall bring thee more profit than gold. Shut up alms, acts of charity, in thy storehouses, and it shall deliver thee from all affliction. It shall fight for thee against thine enemies better than a mighty shield and a strong spear. We see that all the words of Christ are from the beginning. If they were new to the hearers, it's only because they were kept from the people by the religious authorities of the time. Like the religious authorities of today do the same. They only want a tithe. That's the only time they speak of Giving from what I understand. Matthew chapter six, verse 22. The lamp of the body is the eye, therefore if your eye should be sincere, your whole body shall be bright. But if your eye should be evil, your whole body shall be dark. Then if the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. From Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse nine. Beware, that there be not be a thought in thy wicked heart saying, the seventh year, the year of release is at hand, and thine eye be evil against thy poor brother. And thou givest him not, and he cry unto Yahweh against thee, and it be a sin unto thee. And again from the wisdom of Sirach, chapter 14, verse 10. A wicked eye envies his bread, and he is a niggard at his table. He is cheap. He acts like a Jew at his table. <laughs> so again, we see that here Christ is telling us to be fair with our brother and to justly give him what he is due, to share our blessings with our brethren, and to do so with sincerity, if thine eye be singled. Also means, if thy eye be sincere. Verse 24. No man is able to serve two masters. For either he would hate the one and would love the other, or he would endure the one and... I have a quote here in relation to all these verses. They all have to do with us giving to our brethren. We should give our lives to our brethren. Christ gave his life for us. We don't have to die for our brethren. I mean, some of us may have to on occasion that opportunity may arise where one has to die for another white man. But for the most part, we don't have to die for our brethren, but we should devote our lives to our white brethren, as Christ gave his life for us. I have a quote here. I have two quotes, and I'm going to read them, and then I'll tell you who they're from. In the German language we have a word which admirably expresses this underlying spirit of all work. It is flichterfulung, I probably, I probably destroyed that word, which means the service of the common weal before the consideration of one's own interests. The fundamental spirit out of which this kind of activity springs is the contradistinction of egotism. Egotism is loved by the Jew, and we call it idealism. By this we mean to signify the willingness of the individual to make sacrifices for the community and his fellow men. To this kind of mentality, the Aryan owes his position in the world. The second quote, the man who loves his nation, meaning his ethnic people, can prove the sincerity of the sentiment only by being ready to make sacrifices for the nation's welfare. There is no such thing as a national sentiment which is directed towards personal interests. And there is no such thing as a nationalism that embraces only certain classes. Hurrahing or cheering, proves nothing and does not confer the right to call oneself national. If behind that shout there is no sincere preoccupation for the conservation of the nation's well-being, One can be proud of one's people only if there is no class left of which one need to be ashamed. When one half of the nation is sunk in misery and worn out by a hard distress or even depraved or degenerate, that nation presents an unattractive picture, such an unattractive picture that nobody can feel proud to belong to it. It is only when a nation is sound in all its members, substitute the body of Christ for nation there, physically and morally, that the joy of belonging to it can properly be intensified to the supreme feeling which we call national pride. But this national pride in its highest form can be felt only by those who know the greatness of their nation. Those words are absolutely Christian. They are words which no Jew could truly understand. To utter them, the Jew would scream, racist, wouldn't he? Those words are from Adolf Hitler, Mein Kampf, James Murphy's translation, pages 169 and 239. What we don't understand is that, because nobody studies them, nobody studies them because they listen to the Jew and they believe the Jew, Adolf Hitler was fighting our fight. Adolf Hitler was withstanding the ways of the world and the ways of the Jew on behalf of his nation. And he built Christian philosophy into his political philosophy. It's Christian throughout. For that reason, the Jew hated him and destroyed Germany. We see that we should give our lives, devote our lives to our brethren. If we did, we would have heaven. That is what the kingdom of heaven is. Matthew, chapter 6, verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not care for your life what you should eat or what you should drink, nor for your body what you should wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of heaven that they, they do not sow nor harvest nor gather in the storehouses, Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than them? Who caring from among you is able to add one cubit to his stature? And what do you care about clothing? Consider, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They do not toil nor spin yarn. But I say to you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was clothed as one of these. Now if the grass of the field exists today, and tomorrow it is cast into a furnace, Yahweh clothes the how much more you, O you of little faith? Therefore you should not have a care, saying, What should we eat, or what should we drink, or what should we wear? For all these things the heathens seek after. Indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, you should not have a care for tomorrow, for tomorrow shall care for itself. Sufficient for today are its vices or its evils. You know, this doesn't mean that we should walk around naked and hungry and thirsty. This really boils down to whether or not we should put our trust in ourselves, how we can magnify ourselves, or how we can make ourselves appear before men, or whether we want to put our faith in God, how he shall care for us, and whether he shall make sure that we are provided for, not caring for what? men think of us. Psalm 37 is quite long but in its entirety it is in concert with the message of Christ here and therefore I will read it. Verse 1, fret not thyself because of evildoers neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity For they shall soon be cut down like the grass, and wither as the green herb. Trust in Yahweh, and do good, so that you shall dwell in the land. And verily you shall be fed. Delight also thyself in Yahweh, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto Yahweh, and trust also in him. And he shall bring it to pass, and he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. Rest in Yahweh, and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospers in his way. Because of the man who brings wicked devices to pass, cease from anger and forsake wrath. That's difficult to do. Fret not thyself in any ways to do evil. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon Yahweh, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. Yeah, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plot against the just and gnash upon him with his teeth. Yahweh shall laugh at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn out the sword, and have bent their bow, to cast down the poor and the needy, and to sway such as be of upright conversation. Their sword shall enter into their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. A little that a righteous man has, is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but Yahweh upholds the righteous. Yahweh knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in evil time, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of Yahweh shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume into smoke, they shall consume away. Wicked borrow and pay not again, but the righteous show mercy and give. For such as be blessed of him shall inherit the earth, Israel, and they that be cursed of him shall be cut off. The steps of the good man are ordered by Yahweh, and he delights in his way. Though he shall fall, He shall not utterly be cast down, for Yahweh upholds him with his hand. I have been young, and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. These are the words of David. He is ever merciful and lends, and his seed is blessed. Depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. For Yahweh loves judgment and forsakes not his saints, his holy ones. They are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever. The mouth of the righteous speak wisdom, and his tongue talks of judgment. The law of his God in his heart, none of his steps shall slide. The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. Abel and Cain. Yahweh will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. Wait on Yahweh and keep his way, and he shall exalt thee to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a green bay tree, yet he passed away, and lo, he was not. Yeah, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the perfect man, and behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together, the end of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is of Yahweh. He is their strength in the time of trouble, and Yahweh shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. The best commentary on the New Testament is the Old and vice versa. Today, the wicked are ele- ele- elevated and they occupy the places that we see as our own. In reality, our people are being punished because we have followed the ways of the wicked. And therefore, the wicked have become our gods our judges, and our rulers. If we did not follow their ways, this could not possibly have happened to us. We must put away all of the idols of the the Jews and the aliens, television and sports, movies and novels, Hollywood and Nashville, consumerism, credit, and usury, and every other evil, we must put them away and seek our God and put our trust in Him. And He will see to it that our necessities are at hand. The simple truths of Psalm 37 are so readily evident in today's society, yet our people cannot see it because they, were bl- they are blinded by the idols of the Jews. Christianity has really never been practiced. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not condemn in order that you would not be condemned. For with the judgment by which you condemn, you shall be judged. And with the measure by which you measure, it shall be measured with you. You know, that word condemn can be translated judge, but then it's taken out of context by Judeo-Christians, and it's perverted into a, um, a mentality that we should not criticize people for their sin, which is a total deception and a lie. The Greek word krino has to do with judgment and punishment for sin or for harm done. That's what the word means. That's how we should read it here. What we have here in the opening of chapter 7 is a condemnation of hypocritical judgment. Job chapter 27, verse 1. Moreover, Job continued his parable and said, As God lives, who has taken away my judgment, Job ruled over a magnificent household. He was an outstanding member of his community, but now he was in a state of being humbled. As God lives, who has taken away my judgment, and the Almighty who has vexed my soul, all the while my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips shall not speak wickedness, though my tongue uttered deceit. God forbid that I should justify you. Till I die, I will not remove mine integrity from me. Let me say that in this chapter, Job was rejecting the unjust words of Bildad the Shuhite, found in Job chapter 25. If Job had agreed with those words, he would have been justifying Bildad. Many pastors foolishly take the words of Job's friends as scripture, not realizing that in the dialogue, the words of Job's friends are found wanting. Job 27, verse 6. My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me so long as I live. Let mine enemy be as the wicked, and he that rises up against me as the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the hypocrite, though he is gained, when God takes away his soul, meaning his life? Will God hear his cry when trouble comes upon him? Okay, Job did not like the words of Bildad the Shuhite. They were unjust words. Job would not agree with his words, because then he would be justifying an unjust man. When we consent with sinners, we justify them. When we accept the homosexual, we justify him and we accept his sin. That's why Christians are being punished today. Because we've let our pastors lie to us. We've accepted their lies and we've accepted the sins of sinners. We can't do that. We can't accept sin. Paul, in the closing chapter of of, of Romans, I'm sorry, in the opening chapter of his, his epistles to the Romans, talks about homosexuals, talks about sinners, and explains that by the law, they are liable to death for doing those acts. And then Paul says that not only those who approve of those acts are liable to death, I'm sorry, not only those who do those acts are liable to death, but also those who approve of the people committing those acts, they are also liable to death. Now, we can no longer judge by the law, but we see that the law of God is just, and we see what it is. Our hope of personal gain may lead us to judge hypocritically. For instance, we are told to separate ourselves from other peoples. That's easy when those other peoples are of low estate, and we are doing well. But what happens when an alien offers us a great business deal, or when a Jew offers us a low interest loan in our time of need and weakness? That is a form of hypocritical judgment when we decide to accept the business deal or the loan. Another form of typical judgment is the condemnation of our brother or sister for wrongs that we ourselves may have once committed or thought of committing. Or perhaps we would condemn our brother or sister today, but another day we may accept someone else who had done such a thing. Because we like that person or because that person is close to us. It's easy to be a hypocritical judge. Because only Yahweh is perfect, only Yahweh can be our judge. Job chapter 34 discusses the righteous judgment of God, And verse 30 expresses the hope, and I quote, that the hypocrite reigns not, lest the people be ensnared. In the old kingdom, the role of the king was as the ultimate judge of the people. Originally, it was Yahweh, and then those who sat on the throne of Yahweh, right? David told us he sat on the throne of Yahweh. We see as much in the prayer of Solomon upon his becoming king at 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9, where he said, Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this so great a people? It says at 1 Kings, chapter 7, verse 7, Then he made a porch, meaning Solomon, for the throne where he might be able to judge even the porch of judgment, and it was covered with cedar from one side of the floor to the other. When our people rejected Yahweh as king, we invited hypocritical human judgment upon ourselves and have never been, uh, I'm sorry, we have been naturally punished by it ever since. One of the promises of Christianity is that Christ be our judge, and then we shall all be judged fairly, before God who knows all, and not before man whose judgment is clouded, whose knowledge is partial and very incomplete of our circumstances. So we shouldn't be so quick to judge our brother for deeds that they feel they had to do. To do. Judge not, lest you be judged by the measure which, with, with which you have judged your brother. And that means to condemn him. We have to separate ourselves from sinners, as we shall see. Chapter 7, verse 3. Now how do you see the stick? which is in the eye of your brother, but the beam which is in your own eye, you do not perceive. Again, we're talking about hypocritical judgment. Or how do you say to your brother, let me extract the stick from your eye, and behold, there is a beam in your eye? Hypocrite, extract first the beam from your eye, then you will see clearly to extract the stick from the eye of your brother. When you are without fault, perhaps then you may judge your brother righteously. This does not mean that we do not recognize and condemn sin. It is the Christian's duty to recognize and condemn sin and to inform our brethren when they are seen in sin. However, we are not to condemn our brother for his sin. Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brethren, even if a man should already be caught up in some transgression, you, those of the Spirit, restore such a man in the spirit of meekness, watching yourself, lest also you may be tested. When a sinner is unrepentant, we are to put him out of our community. As Paul advises in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, to deliver such a wretch, he was speaking about a fornicator, to deliver such a wretch to the adversary for destruction of the flesh, in order that the spirit may be preserved in the day of the Lord. Putting a man out of our community forces him over to the adversary, to non-Christians and to aliens, And God will use those aliens to judge the sinner. As Paul says further on in that chapter, what is it to me to judge those outside, meaning those who we have put out of the community? Not at all should you judge those within you or among you. But those outside, Yahweh judges. You will expel the wicked from amongst yourselves. So we do not judge our brethren in the sense of condemning them. That's what Christ is talking about, and he's talking about judging them hypocritically. Rather, we try to correct our brother. If our brother is unrepentant, and he's going to harm members of the community, right? Then we have to put him out of the community. Now, that doesn't mean putting him out of church on Sunday. When you put a brother on it, when, when you put a brother out of the community, it doesn't mean that he can't go to church and eat communion from the priest, right? That's a joke. That that's really sad. It means well, when an unrepentant sinner is put out of the community, it means that you deal with him not that no Christian in the community deals with that man. That's what it means, and it forces him. Into the hands of the aliens and, and, and unbelievers and whoever else is outside of the Christian community. It forces him to leave so that he no longer becomes a threat to you. That is Christian. Matthew 7 verse 6. You should not give that which is holy to the dogs, nor should you cast your pearls before swine lest they shall trample them with their feet, and turning, they would rend you to pieces. Sheep should not communicate, share things. That's what communicate means. It means to share things in the original sense of the word. It means to share things in common. Sheep should not communicate with dogs and with swine. When we communicate, we are sharing with one another. We should not ever go into the presence of aliens and share the word of God with them. We should not go on blog talk radio and talk and try to teach the truth to Negroes, as one certain person in Christian identity has recently done. should not ever go into the presence of aliens and share the word of our God with them. Nowhere in scripture are we told to share the truth with swine, dogs, or beasts, and those who are doing so are doing us a great disservice. From the wisdom of Sirach again, chapter 12, verse 5, do well unto him that is lowly, but give not to the ungodly. Hold back thy bread, and give it not to him, lest he overmaster thee thereby. For else thou shalt receive twice as much evil for all the good thou shalt have done unto him. Even if we pretend to teach aliens the truth, they will only use it against us. That's what the wisdom of Sirach says, chapter 12, verse 5. That's what Yahshua Christ says. Here in Matthew chapter 7. Verse 7. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened for you. For each who receives, each who asks, receives. And who seeks, finds. And for him knocking, it shall be opened. Or what man is there among you, whose son shall ask of him bread? Who shall give to him a stone? Or would ask also for a fish? Who would give to him a serpent? Therefore, if you being base know to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your father who is in the heavens give good things to those who ask him? He who looks for the truth
1: with an open
0: mind and heart shall find it, but it must be in harmony with the word of God or he is deceived. That is why we must ask of our Father and not ask from of men. He is telling us in verse 11 here that He expects us to ask, of the Father. The only way to find God is in the Word of God, guided by His Spirit. One without the other is of no use to us. Christ always challenged the people of His time to search the Scriptures. Now, if we ask for a fish, Our Father will not give us a serpent. Therefore, if we turn to the serpents and beasts of this world, how should we be rewarded for that? Yahshua told us that he only came for the sheep. Therefore, we should also only go to the sheep. We have no need to deal with swine and dogs. And since he would not give his pearls to them, they have nothing for us. When those among us who claim to be of us insist upon going to reveal the truth to aliens, they show their fruits. They are truly not of us. Rather, they are infiltrators and usurpers seeking to scatter the sheep. Indeed, as Peter says, The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow that is washed to wallowing in the mire. Matthew 7, verse 12. Therefore, all things whatever you may desire that men should do for you, thus we also you do for them. For this is the law and the prophets. This goes back to the discussion of almsgiving at the beginning of Matthew chapter 6. We should expect treatment from others as we have treated others. We should expect treatment from our brethren as we have treated them. The law says in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am Yahweh. So we see that these precepts, they've been with our race from the beginning. We've had them all through Old Testament times. There's nothing, Joshua Christ is not telling us anything here in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 that he didn't tell us for thousands of years before that. Verse 13, enter in through the narrow gate, because wide is the gate and broad is the road which leads to destruction. And they are many who are entering through it. But because narrow is the gate and distressed is the road which leads to life, then they are few who are finding it. Of course, most of us would rather believe the comfortable lie than have to live the uncomfortable truth. We would rather walk the easy road than the hard path. We would rather listen to those who have appointed themselves over us than take up the responsibility into our own hands and study the word of God for ourselves. This is why Luke, in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, said of the men of Beroia that these were of a more noble race than those in Thessalonica who accepted the word with all eagerness. Each day examining the writings, if these things, to see if these things would hold thus. Those seeking to enter in through the straight gate, they seek to do so through the word of Yahweh. Those going or seeking to enter in through the wide gate, the road which leads to destruction, they're the people who are just going with the flow. Who are just going along with the world, who do things because it feels good, and and because they think that they're the things that they should do because that's what everybody else is doing. There's a um, a somewhat related. It, it, it makes a good example that this passage. In in the Apocrypha, in 1 Esdras from the Septuagint, 1 Esdras in the Septuagint, in in the Apocrypha, 1 Esdras is a, it's clearly a better copy of the book of Ezra than what we have in the Masoretic text. And here there's a rather striking example in in chapter 7, and I'll quote verse 6 through verse 13. And the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites and others that were of the captivity, that were added unto them, did according to the things written in the book of Moses. And to the dedication of the temple of Yahweh, they offered a hundred bullocks, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and twelve goats for the sin of all Israel, according to the number of the chief tribes of Israel. Now, we see that this is being done by the people who are rededicating the temple after it was finally rebuilt. The priests also and the Levites stood arrayed in their vestments according to their kindreds in the service of Yahweh, the God of Israel, according to the book of Moses, and the porters at every gate, at every gate there were porters watching who would go into the gate. And the children of Israel that were all the captivity held the Passover, the 14th day of the first month. After that, the priests and the Levites were sanctified. They that were of the captivity were not all sanctified together, but the Levites were all sanctified together. They were washed, right, as according to the law in Deuteronomy. And so they offered the Passover for all of them of the captivity and for their brethren, the priests, and for themselves. And the children of Israel that came out of the captivity... That these are the people who returned from Babylon, right, did eat, even all they that had separated themselves from the abominations of the people of the land, and they sought the Lord. Preparing for this program, I saw this passage in Ezra, in, in 1 Ezra's, was cross-referenced to Matthew 7:13 by the Nestle Aeland, Novum Testamentum greca 27th edition which is the Greek text that I use for my studies. I was quite surprised that this was cross-referenced to Matthew seven thirteen, because the cross-reference upholds the racial, racial nature of the covenants which are made only with Israel. And so it is that the so-called churches, which seek to include the whole world into the redemption of Christ, cause destruction. And those of us who seek to enter into the straight gate are those who realize that they must separate themselves from the abominations of the aliens, and that no alien shall ever get by the porters at the gates of the city of God. As we saw in Matthew chapter 5, Christ came only for the prisoners who sat in darkness for the children of the Israelite captivity. Matthew 7, verse 15. Keep away from the false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are rapacious wolves, or ravening wolves, if you prefer tradition. You shall know them from their fruits. Does anyone anyone gather grapes from thorns or figs From thistles, Yahshua demanded that his pastors feed his sheep so they don't go to Negroes looking for sheep. Thusly, every good tree produces fine fruit, but the rotten tree produces evil fruit. A good tree is not able to produce evil fruit. All Israel will be saved. Nor is a rotten tree to produce good fruit. Only Israel will be saved. Each tree not producing fine fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. Indeed, from their fruits, you shall know them. Wolves, foxes, dogs. They are all of the biological family called Canadahi. Out of these, Wolves and dogs are called canini. Man, that's, that, that is so similar to Canaanite. It can't be a coincidence. And foxes are called vulpini. Dingoes, jackals, coyotes, and hyenas are also all of this family. They are all canines. And to the ancients, they were all basically dogs. Herod was called a fox by Christ. He's a dog. The Canaanite woman was called the dog. We'll get to that, Matthew chapter 15, in a few weeks. Psalm 22, as Clifton has pointed out, Psalm 22 prophecy that Christ was to be killed by the power of the dog, which referred to the Edomites in control of Jerusalem. By all of this, we know who the wolves are. Paul warned in Acts chapter 20 that after his departure, Oppressive wolves shall come in not being sparing of the sheep. And then Paul went on to contrast the oppressive wolves to the false teachers who would arise among the people themselves. So we see different varieties of false teachers, right? Some of them are just Israelites with bad ideas. Others are oppressive wolves who want to devour the sheep. So we see that While not all false teachers are wolves, we certainly must be aware of and defend against the wolves first. Often I get called mean or or cruel when I try to defend against the wolves and, and that's just tough. Christ is warning us to do this and we have no commission to be complacent Regarding the wolves, we must spot them, and we must eject them, or at least sound the alarm. It is our duty. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not all who say to me, Prince, prince, or Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of the heavens. But he doing the will of my Father who is in the heavens. Many shall say to me, meaning Christ, In that day, prince, prince, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name? And have we not done many works of power in your name? And then shall I profess to them that never have I known you. Depart from me, those who are working at lawlessness. No matter what men do or say, the covenants were made only with the children of Israel. Yahweh's words at Amos, where it was spoken to Israel, that you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Those words have never changed. They never will. Even if they seem to do well, and there are people, there are people among the aliens who seem to do well. They really cannot do well since they can never honestly admit to Yahweh's exclusive relationship with Israel and his exclusive promises to preserve Israel. False teachers, false teachers want to offer preservation to the aliens after the second advent, but the Bible makes it clear that only the children of Israel shall inherit the earth as it has been illustrated here in the exposition of Matthew chapter 5 last week, and on many other occasions. Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore each who hears my words and does them, he shall be compared to a sensible man who has built his house upon bedrock. And the rain descends, and the river comes, and the winds blow, and they fall against that house. Yet it does not fall, for it was founded upon the bedrock. And each who hears these my words and not doing them, he shall be compared to a foolish man who has built his house upon the sand. And the rain descends and the river comes and the winds blow and they fall against that house and it falls and great was its fall. Once we have the truth of the word and we follow it, We are unshakable in our convictions. Those who compromise the word, the word of God, they stand upon foundations of shifting sand, and they are easily rebuked for their lies. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Those who obey the words of Christ, they shall be established. Matthew 7, verse 28. And when it came that Joshua had completed these words, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as if having authority, and not as their scribes. Their scribes. Their scribes were afraid of offending the dragon, and the beasts, which had gotten its power from the dragon. They were afraid to speak the truth, even if they could. And therefore, they were double-minded, their words not having any authority. Some Some of their scribes were dragons. And therefore, purposely corrupted the word of God, even if they could see it. At John chapter 11, verse 48, it is explained of the scribes and the Pharisees that they said, If we should leave him thusly, they, meaning the people, shall all believe in him, and the Romans shall come, and they shall take both our place and our nation. They knew that Yahshua spoke the truth. Yet they loved the world more, they loved their place, they loved their station in society, and they could not risk it. They cared not for the truth. They only cared for their position and their security. Those indeed who were Israelites, some of them were Israelites, they weren't all Edomites, And we see that today, even when you show a mainstream pastor, or anybody in the mainstream, anybody who cares about the world more than about God, when you show them the truth, they don't want to hear it because it upsets their position in the world. They find themselves not worthy before God. If they're Israelites, they'll be saved. But they won't like where they're at. They won't have the reward that they expect. And I'll leave it at that. This has been Matthew chapter 6 and 7. Next Friday, I will be back with Matthew chapter 8. Next Friday morning, I will be with Charles Giuliani on Truth Hurts at Oracle Broadcasting. He's invited me to be on his program. I know that I've been preceded there by um, Eli James and several of Eli's associates. It faker. I think um, I think Charles might be in for something a little different when he speaks to me. I pray so. Praise Yahweh.